Well, hello. Good morning. We guys stand up with us and join us as we sing worship and praise to our Savior this morning.
Worthy is the 
We're going to have our ushers come forward this morning, and we're going to take our offering as we continue. Uh, I love that we get to sing and describe our Savior to one another. Amen. Sometimes we just need to hear that, and we need to hear maybe the person's voice next to us declaring that uh, to us and, and declaring that to God himself in worship. We need to be reminded by other voices, and, and especially our own, of who God is. But, man, we can just sing the truth of his word together and we can declare him he's worthy. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. God, we love you, and we praise you for who you are. We give you uh, our gifts, our offerings, knowing that it is not anything that we provide for you or anything that you need from us, uh, except that you look for us to uh, come to you with a broken and contrite heart, and, uh, Lord, a heart that is surrendered to you to declare you king of all things, including our own lives. And so this morning, would you be lifted up in every aspect here? In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. 
for giving us your son who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorned the shame so that we as your children uh, could be made into his likeness to be uh, freed from our sin to be set uh, on new ground to be made a new creation in Christ and to be called your children and to have his righteousness holy cow God what a great gift what a father what a Savior, what a Son, and it's you that we praise this morning. Everybody said amen. amen. As you sit down, we just have a little bit of Crosspoint family news. Um, I want to be praying for Nancy Gorton, whose son Eric has passed away this past week. Um, services are tomorrow at the Eureka uh, Funeral Home. Visitations from 4 to 6, and then 6 o'clock will be the service. So if you see her today or you know her uh, this week especially, um, just be praying for her and let her know that you love her. Well, good morning. How are we doing? Cool. So uh, my name is John, and I am not one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm really, really excited and honored to have the opportunity to share with you God's Word this morning. And even more than that, I, I truly believe that uh, God has something for you here. Um, the Old Testament, as, as you have seen over the past few months as we begin dug, digging in to the story of God throughout Scripture, you've seen that the Old Testament is very relevant today. It's very important, and uh, without the Old Testament, we do not have the New, and without an understanding of the Old Testament, we cannot see the beauty of the New Testament. And so I'm excited to share with you uh, just the story of, 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 of what God has done in the past and how the stories of what God has done in the past fuels and, and, and brings about a, a wonderful and beautiful faith that we can have in Jesus now, today. Um, welcome to Crosspoint. If it's your first time here, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here. We, we do not believe that you're here by accident, and it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to share uh, with you the glory of the Lord as we got to sing about earlier today. As I, as I, as I prep for this message, which is essentially about trusting God, uh, imagine that I actually had to trust in God a lot. This is something that I've actually never done before. I've spoken multiple times to kids, and when you talk with kids, it's a little more simple. There's a little less content, and uh, I've, I've never really had the opportunity to preach in a Sunday service. And so uh, it required an immense amount of trust in God for me to not only say yes to this opportunity, but to really embrace the fullness of what God had for me 
in the preparation. Um, you know, it takes a long time to prep for something like this, and man, I tell you what, it's terrifying. Um, if I could be honest with you, it, it's terrifying. And uh, my fear in doing this has reflected God's faithfulness to me in so many ways as I got to prep for this, as I got to pray through this, as I spent the past like three hours relentlessly reading over and over and over this material that I'm going to talk about to make sure I don't forget anything, right? It's, uh, it's cool to see that in spite of our fear, God is faithful, amen? It's good to see that in spite of our worry, God is faithful. It's good to see that in spite of um, circumstances that God is faithful, and it's good to see that in spite of danger, God is faithful. And I hope that you see that this morning. Last week, we took a break from our normal series called The Promised Land to wrestle with the Easter narrative. And I'm I'm really grateful for the timing of that simply because uh, we're going to go back to the cross and go back to the resurrection and go back to the ascension of Jesus today because it's because of those things that we get to sit here this morning. It's because of those things that we get to see into the secrets of the Holy Scriptures and wrestle with. Um, the wisdom and will of God. And so uh, as we kind of reflect back on the story that we took a break from last week, we see that we've entered into the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua left off where Deuteronomy uh, stopped, and that was with the death of Moses. So Moses died. We have this guy named Joshua who kind of was Moses' right-hand man uh, throughout his leadership campaign and leading Israel out of uh, Egypt. And Joshua has ascended to leadership, and he has kind of taken up this mantle uh, to lead these people into the promised land. And we are faced with a very, very familiar account in the beginning of Joshua that mirrors something that we see in Numbers chapter 13. The Israelites are once again at the foot of the promised land, looking out on the land that God has promised them, that they've been waiting for. For a long time. But in Numbers 13, this, this happened already, right? You remember the story. Numbers 13, they were at the foot of the promised land, and Moses was their leader. And what happened? He sent 12 spies in, right? What did the 12, 12 spies do? Two came back with enough trust in God to actually say, we can do this. Not because of, of our strength or our power or our might, but because God is faithful to carry us through this, this campaign toward victory. And, uh, but there were 10 spies who did not. Ten spies that said, these Canaanites are too mighty. These Canaanites are too big. They're they're too much. There's too many of them. We can't do this. And because of that, it actually led to many in Israel rebelling and trying to supplant the leadership of Moses and Aaron. This time around, it's different, right? Two weeks ago, we heard uh, Pastor Dave share how the Israelites trusted in God to lead them across the Jordan River, that God actually physically parted the Sea of the Jordan River, just like he parted the seas of the Red Sea for the generation before, so that these, this new generation of Israelites could see God's faithfulness in carrying out the promise that he said would happen. When God makes a promise, he's serious about it. When God makes a promise, he's serious about it. If God decrees something to be true, it's true. It's not, it's not, that, it's, it's, it's not that it might happen. It's not that there's a chance that God's promise is going to come true. It's that it's true. It's going to happen. If God promises the Israelites the promised land, the Israelites are going to get the promised land. It's a matter of time. And their lack of faith in that is what led to them actually being cast into the wilderness for 40 years and condemned, right? Because the Israelites are not excused from the wrath of God either. And the Israelites receive that judgment 
and being cast into the wilderness. And so now, fast forward 40 years later, we have Joshua uh, coming into the promised land with the nation of Israel. They're relying on the Lord throughout the process, and we see this beautiful picture of God's faithfulness at the parting of the Jordan River. But then right after uh, he parts the Jordan River, Joshua does something very similar to the leadership lessons that he learned from Moses. He sent spies into the promised land again, except for instead of sending 12 spies, he sent two. And the two spies, he actually directed them to specifically look at the city of Jericho. Because what Joshua knew in the, in the wisdom of leadership that he had learned is that he knew Jericho was the first obstacle in the military campaign that Israel would have over the promised land. And so he had these spies check out Jericho. They go into Jericho, and the leadership in Jericho, the king, found out that these two spies were there. And so a prostitute named Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, uh, decided to hide these spies from the king of Jericho. Now this is very interesting, and we'll get into this a little bit more later on, but you have this prostitute who hides these spies from the king, facing treason from the king, and she actually tells the king that she doesn't know where the spies are, and the king goes on his way. She sends him kind of on this, this, this false uh, trail to hunt down these Israelite spies, and they actually follow this false trail almost all the way to the Israelite camp while the spies have an opportunity to sneak away. And what we see here is these spies come back, and they actually report something very interesting to Joshua that is a direct contrast to the report that uh, Israel received when the 12 spies came back. These two spies say, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also, all the inhabitants in the land melt in fear because of us. I love the wording here. It says that the Lord has given they had so much faith in God that they knew that this gift was, they, they were ready to receive it. But not only that, they knew that this gift was already given. It wasn't about to be given. It wasn't going to be given in the future. God had already given this gift to them. And their, their faith is astounding here. Their belief and their trust in God is amazing. And Joshua 5.1 describes the response of the leaders residing in the promised land. We see uh, a heart in the Canaanites of, of fear. It says, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan. I love that they heard it. They didn't get to see it, right? But they heard what God had done. They heard what God had done. For the people of Israel, until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. With confidence in God, the people of God are moving toward the city of Jericho. And we pick up the story in Joshua 5, 13. It says this, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And beyond, behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. 
The seventh, and on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass before the Ark of the Lord. Joshua received these crazy orders. This is... This is the most ridiculous military strategy in the history of time. He, you have this, 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 this mysterious figure with a drawn sword that comes to you and says, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua falls on his face immediately because what he recognizes that this isn't an ordinary man. This is a, this is a man of some sort of deity, right? This is a very messenger of God, God almighty. And Joshua treats him as such. And what we see here that's very interesting in the pages of Scripture is actually something that can be troubling to some of us. And it's, it's a legitimate question, but I think many of us, when we look at especially the story of Jericho and the conquering of the Promised Land, we might ask ourselves the question, how can a loving God, how can a loving God order Israel to wipe out an entire group of people? completely, to kill him. How, how, how can the loving God of the Old Testament do this? When we have a God, right, in the New Testament that says, love your enemies. For some of us, we can look at this and see this as a contradiction. We can look at this and see that, that well, maybe God changes. Maybe God changes. Maybe the God of the Old Testament is a little different than the God of the New. And I'm here to tell you that that couldn't be further from the truth. But we need to examine the scriptures to see what, what the Bible has to say about this. Because let me tell you something. If you're wrestling with that question right now, it's a valid question. It is a valid question. And it's okay to be in a place to ask yourself that question. I believe, I believe truly being bold enough to ask and wrestle with those questions leads us to a place where we can grow in our faith and see the faithfulness of our God because what we do in wrestling with that question is actually discover and see that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God doesn't change. We cannot use this as an excuse to discredit the entire Old Testament. We can't use this stumbling block to say, well, I'm going to stick with the God of the New Testament and I'm going to dismiss the credibility and the authority of the old because I don't disagree. I disagree with what God is doing there. We have to be careful because when, we, when, we, when we're doing that, we walk a very thin line where we even can put ourselves in the place of God and determine what is right, true, and just. And this is important. This is important to wrestle with this morning. And in the conquering of the promised land, we have to remember that God is fulfilling a promise that he made to his people. The promise is related to the direct covenant that God made with Abraham. Do you remember that? Uh, About three or four months back when we talked about the covenant that God made with Abraham and that the entire story of the Bible kind of hinges on this covenant because what this covenant does is actually points to Jesus, but it also affirms 
God's method and motives behind allowing the Israelites to go into Egypt, be in slavery for 430 years, and then come out of Egypt and go into the promised land. In Genesis 15, verse 13, we pick it up and and we see a little bit of of this conversation between God and uh, Abraham in God making this covenant. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, that is Egypt, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, bringing judgment on Egypt. We talked about that earlier in the year. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here, they being the Israelites, shall come back to the promised land in the fourth generation. And then the reason that he gives for them coming back in the fourth generation, it says, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached its completion. Now, the Amorites are descendants of the Canaanites, and the Canaanites are the people that inhabit the promised land. And so the reason that God gives his descendants to come back later is because the sin of the Amorites has not reached its completion. The promise of God we see here to Abraham is kind of twofold. We see the promise to give the land to the Israelites, while at the same time we see a promise to judge the inhabitants of that land for their sin. And this really reflects the heart of God because this isn't the only time in Scripture that we see this happen, that God has this kind of twofold plan going where he's bringing about blessing for one and judgment for another. We see it throughout the entire New Testament where he brings about blessing for the church and judgment for those who are not saved. It might look a little different here to us because it's in the context of physical warfare, but it's no different. These descendants of the Canaanites are included in the judgment of God and being brought, and it's, being, it's not just being brought out on um, one or two people. This is bringing, being brought about on the whole land of Canaan. God's allegiance does not rest with Israel. We see this in chapter 5 when the commander of the army of the Lord is asked a question of allegiance by Joshua and he responds with no. God's allegiance is with himself. He's not with Israel and he's not with the enemies of Israel. God's plan is for himself and his plan is to give blessing to the people that he chooses to give blessing and to bring wrath on the people who he decides to bring wrath on because of what they're doing. We have to see this. We have to understand what is going on here because what it does is it allows us to get a glimpse into the weight of sin. It allows us to get a glimpse into how God sees sin. You see, for us as fallen creatures, it's very easy to dismiss sin as not a big deal because it's something that's just honestly prevalent in our culture and it's wired into the very fabric of who we are as fallen individuals. But we can't dismiss this. We have to look at sin through perfect eyes. And when we look at sin through perfect eyes, we see why God is bringing about this harsh judgment on these people. The military campaign is not a campaign of Israel. This is a campaign of God. And we see that here. The divine judgment on the land of Canaan is similar to the one that he brought about on the land of Egypt in the early chapters of Exodus. These are the enemies of the Lord, and they must be dealt with by the Lord. As we examine the peculiar battle plans given to Joshua here, we see something quite powerful. God leaves absolutely no room for the Israelites to take credit for this. 
And this is because this is God's battle to fight. It is God's battle to fight using his people to beat his enemies. And God will win. Up on the screen, you'll see a a picture of what Jericho truly looked like. Um, This is really interesting because, well, it doesn't look very immaculate, right? Um, And something that is also interesting is the entire city of Jericho covered about 10 acres of land. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I've heard the story of the Bible, I was thinking that Jericho was like this giant metropolis and huge, and it took the Israelites an entire day to walk around the city, and it was a supernatural act of God that they were able to do it seven times in one day. But when we see that the entire land took up 10 acres, which is about seven and a half football fields, we see that, okay, so it was a manageable walk for them. But the interesting thing about the city of Jericho is it was surrounded by ditches and then these walls that were uh, 25 feet high and 20 feet wide. And because the, the city of Jericho sat on a hill, dug around by ditches, it made those walls appear higher than, than, than they actually were and caused any attacking party to see them as an insurmountable obstacle in the way of any military campaign. Surrounding, um, surrounding these walls, this great ditch, obviously would have extended the walk of the Israelites a little bit more but it would have caused them to wrestle with the standard military strategy of this day. So if, if, if you're faced with a wall like this, you're either going to, if you're going to go in and take a city, you're either going to go over the wall, right? You're going to go dig a trench, maybe go under the wall. Or, for those of you who are familiar with the Trojan horse method, you might try to like go through the wall, sneak in a few men into the city to kind of take down the city from the inside, let the gates down, and storm the, storm the gates. Or, the fourth standard military strategy would be to surround the city with the entirety of your army and starve the city of resources so that they come out and surrender. This, this, this strategy um, of God is very peculiar because as Joshua, who is a leader and quite smart, is wrestling with how to, how to tackle this city and how to take it, um, the method that God wants him to use is, is odd, but once again, it leaves no credit for the Israelites in the victory of God, because once again, this is God's battle, not the Israelites. The Israelites are, are receiving blessing from the battle, but this is a campaign of God to give blessing to his people and to punish his enemies. Something unique to the plan of God and the destruction of Jericho is also the requirement for the obedience of his people. You see, God designed the plan to be carried out by faithful people. That is why, even though God's plan was definitely going to be accomplished, that's why we saw in Numbers 13, when the people were not faithful, the battle did not happen. Because God is using his people to carry out his purposes. He's, he is still in the business of doing this. This is the entire function of the church, is God using his people to carry out his purposes. And so we, we see that the instructions actually require a form of insanity. For those of you that don't know, insanity is a doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And what I find awesome about this is the Israelites are told to do the same thing over and over again. And literally on the seventh time, expect something different to happen. It's pretty interesting. And I think the, 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 the funny thing about this whole thing is who God actually has walk around the city. God commands the Israelites to gather their armed men and march around the city once a day for six days. He then tells them to gather seven priests, who I don't know about you, but I don't think priests are very good at fighting. 
It just doesn't make, it, it, again, this is, this is a plan that doesn't make much, much sense to anybody uh, and would appear foolish to anybody who doesn't have a faithful belief in the miraculous power of our God. So these priests have seven trumpets of ram's horns, and they're actually to march with the Ark of the Covenant, which I would imagine is not the lightest thing to carry around. Right? We know this thing's made of gold and precious, precious stones, and it has these, these angelic creatures carved into the top of it, and it's got handles, and so you've got four priests that are supposed to carry this thing around the city. That sounds like quite the task. But then, you know, picture this. You have the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of everything. The fullness of the presence of God is with his people. In front of the Ark of the Covenant, you have seven priests, representatives of God to the people, blowing these trumpets. And, and, and the trumpets actually mean something very significant as well. But then in front and behind this group is our armed men walking around the city in, silent. Nobody was a, able to say anything. God commanded them to be silent. The only thing that was to be sounded was the sound of the trumpets for the first six days. Again, this is ridiculous. But Joshua responds to these commands in a way that modeled the audacious faith that we are called to walk in. Remember, he fell on his face in worship. And the interesting thing about this story is this man of God that is standing in front of him, stating that he's the commander of the army of the Lord, looks very similar to the same figure that appears to Moses in the burning bush and Jacob at Peniel when he wrestles with God. In both circumstances, we see a divine figure, or all three circumstances, we see a divine figure confronting a human servant just before a life or death situation is about to take place. Moses about to go into Egypt to take the promised land, and Jacob about to confront his brother, who he thought was pretty mad at him because he stole all of his brother's inheritance. Jacob wrestles with God. Physically. Moses argues. Joshua fell on his face. He fell on his face. He hears the command, the foolish command, right? It seems foolish. It seems ridiculous. But he responds in obedience and falls on his face in submissive worship. This same picture of Joshua's faithfulness that we see in receiving this command is mirrored in the Israelites carrying out the command. We see God using his faithful, obedient people to accomplish his purposes because they trust in their God. They trust in their God. Let's look at Joshua 6.15, carry out the rest of the story. On the seventh day, they rose early. So they've, 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 they've done this for six days. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that's within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the devoted things to destruction. Lest when you have, devo lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted. So he reminds them of what they're to do and the people shout. And the trumpets are blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people let out a great shout and the wall fell down flat. 
so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the, with the edge of the sword. The people of God did exactly what God commanded, and what made their, their obedience pleasing to God was their trust in God to carry out what he promised. Let me say that again. What made their obedience pleasing to God was their trusting in him to carry out the promise. Unlike the generation before them, these Israelites received the benefit and blessing of God because they trusted in him. It was their trust in God that allowed them to receive the blessing of God. And the trumpets they were commanded to blow constantly throughout all of their walks around Jericho signified something very special. In Numbers 10.9 it says, And when you go to war in your land, the adversary who oppresses you, Then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and shall be saved from your enemies. You see, the trumpets that they were blown were actually a physical reminder of their trust in God. And so I love the picture here because when we're we're called to do something that stretches us, when we're called to do something that is challenging to us, when we're called to do something that we're we're, we're not sure of, but we know that this is from God. Now, we we can... a lot, a lot of times we can see somebody say, well, I know this is of God, and it's really not. But when it is, and it stretches you, and it's challenging to you, and it might bring about some hardship at some point in your life, do you have a physical reminder of the faithfulness of God to hold you firm in that struggle, in that tension? The Israelites did. These trumpets signified who they were going to trust in, and it reminded the army as they continued to walk around the city what they were doing and who they were doing it for. And who they were doing it with. Because remember, the fullness of the presence of God is with his people. If Israel didn't trust in God to bring about victory over Jericho, their walk around Jericho would have been extremely insignificant. God always responds to the faithfulness of his people with his own faithfulness. Look at verse 16 and 17. In the moment the people were waiting for, God responds in an incredible way. They staked their lives in the plan of God. They put themselves in danger. Bows and arrows were around by then, so I'm sure walking around the wall of Jericho was not the safest place for them to be. But they staked their lives in the plan of God, and God came through. The walls of Jericho fell down flat. Crosspoint, don't miss the greatness of our God. Don't miss it. It's beautiful. The most impenetrable impenetrable obstacle standing between the people of God and the mission of God was destroyed only by the hand of God. God used his people to accomplish his purposes, but he did it in such a way to where his people couldn't take credit for any of it. Because again, this isn't Israel's fight. This is God's fight. Not a great human structure, not the hardness of men's hearts, not even death itself can stand away in the plans of the Lord. This is something worth noticing because this shows that our God's a God worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our affection. He's worth giving our lives to. He's worth committing ourselves to. He's worth following. This isn't just some empty story. This isn't just some man in the clouds. This is the Lord Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth who knitted you together in your mother's womb and knows the number of hairs on your head. This is the Lord who suspended the clouds in the sky 
and told the sea where to stop and the land where to start. This is an incredible God. And we're called to follow him. We're called to be obedient to him. He's worthy of all praise and glory. And the text even goes as far to say, as Jericho fell down, the walls fell down flat. Um, I love that because the, the Hebrew word actually literally means the wall spread out. Um, which gives a, a very, very interesting picture to the fact that this was not a gradual deterioration of a human structure, but a miraculous act of God to immediately spread out a wall to where the men of Israel could just walk in. As we see, Joshua reminds the people immediately of their task, what they were, what, what they were supposed to do. He keeps their mind on the goal. Any good leader is going to keep the mind of, of who they're shepherding on the goal. Our pastor does this every week. He keeps our mind on the goal. Where we're to fix our eyes, not just on Sundays, but every second. Where are we to draw our strength? What are we to do? Why are we here? These are the goals painted for us in Scripture, and Joshua models that good leadership by keeping their eyes fixed on the goal to take the city. The entire city was to be devoted to the Lord for destruction. And remember, God is not bringing his people into the land he promised to give them. Or God is not only bringing his people into the land he promised to give them. He is also using the nation of Israel as a tool to bring about his rightful judgment on the people of Canaan. In his instructions against warfare on these nations, we see why the Israelites were actually to completely destroy them. In Deuteronomy 20, God gives instructions to Moses to relay to the people of Israel for any form of warfare. In the first set of instructions, we actually see God command Moses and the nation of Israel to offer a peace treaty first to any nation desiring to war against Israel. This peace treaty, if rejected, um, God commanded the Israelites to fight back. If, If Israel offers a peace treaty and the hostile nation responds hostily, Israel is to go to war. And if Israel goes to war, they are to put all the men to the sword and save the children, the women, the livestock, the goods, and to keep those and to bring them into the nation as a, as a gift. However, in the second set of instructions, God gives radically different, not only a radically different tone to how they're approached to approach war, but also very different instructions. In verse 16 of Deuteronomy chapter 20, it says this, but in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, this is the promised land, You shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. The very reason God commanded the Israelites to completely destroy these people is a worship issue. It's a worship issue. You see, the people of the promised land worship false gods in a way considered abominable by God. Examples of some of the ways these people worship their false gods can be actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'd encourage you to wrestle with that this week in your community groups. Some of the ways that they worship false gods include burnt offerings of children, divination, fortune-telling, inquiring of the dead, and sorcery. Listen, I know these things may sound weird, Odd or maybe even fake to us, but according to the scriptures, these are very real things that happened 
and are only possible through the immaterial demonic forces plaguing this world. We see God's desire in taking these people out. He wants to preserve his people. Look at, look at verse 18. It says, that, you may not te- that they may not teach you to do according to all the abominable practices that they have done for their gods. God's preserving his people to maintain faithfulness to him. And he knows if they do not take these people out in his judgment, that they will lead the Israelites away from the one true God and into destruction for themselves. God's, the power of God is being revealed through the obedient trust of his people as they carry out this plan. God's design is to keep them in a place of trust, purifying them from the wickedness of sin so they may may be set apart, not only to represent God to the world, because remember, this is God's people. They are called to live purely and to represent him well to the world, to be a testimony of God's grace to his people, to the nations. But they are also called to live in this way so that they would be united with him in a manner similar to Adam and Eve before the fall. And the, the Canaanites were a stumbling block in the way of that unity. It is out of God's love for Israel that he wants these people destroyed. Listen, what parent, hey, I'm a new parent, woo! But listen, what, what parent in their right mind would watch their child walk into destruction willingly. Seriously, that the most unloving thing a parent can do is see a child run into a street with a car coming and just sit there, right? You see a kid run into a street with a car coming, you're going to chase that kid down. In the same way, God does not want to see his children harmed by the people of Canaan. He knows what can happen. He's God. He sees all, he knows all, he judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart, he knows our motives in everything we do. Don't you think he knows what's best for his people? And don't you think if anybody is able to judge the unrighteous, it would be him? We have to see the authority of God properly to understand that the judgment of God here is very appropriate. It's very appropriate. What we will see the rest of the time we're in the Old Testament is that Israel was not faithful to keep this promise. Israel was not faithful to completely take out everybody in the promised land. And what we see throughout the remainder of the Old Testament is these nations leading people astray. We see it in the story of Samson. We see it in Solomon marrying wives from all these other places and being led astray to worship false gods. We see it in so many ways that it leads to Israel's demise and God actually sends another nation, Babylon, to judge Israel. Because again, we have to know God's people are not excused from God's judgment. They don't get a free pass. We don't get a free pass. Every person on the face of the earth is subject to the standards that God created us to walk in. The only pass that we get is at the foot of the cross. And even that's not a pass because somebody had to pay for it. You might look at it as a freebie. I don't look at it as a freebie because somebody paid for it. The debt is still there. The judgment is still there. 
It's just on somebody else and not me. The very next thing that we actually see in Joshua's commands to the people is that he reminds the men going into the nation of Jericho to remember a prostitute named Rahab. We see God's desire to not just judge his enemies. This is when this story gets really sweet. We see God's desire to have his enemies be brought to himself in repentance. We see God's mercy. We see his grace. We mentioned her briefly earlier in the, in, the, in, in the message and how she was vital to the spies' survival in Jericho. She housed the Israelite spies on a roof from the king of Jericho, committing treason against this man. But what was it about her righteous act that, that, that caused this enemy of God, this prostitute? She wasn't a good person. She's a prostitute. Prostitution was a method of worshiping false gods. This is another abominable practice that God was judging the land of Canaan for. So this wasn't just a, a, a normal woman. This was a woman who deserved the wrath of God. And so what was it that caused God to take his wrath away from her? It's not really about what she did. It's really about why she did it. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 8, we see uh, a little bit of an account of her, her conversation that she has with these spies. It says, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on us. And all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. She, she knows who these people are. She knows who these spies are. She knows who they serve. And it says in verse 10, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. This woman, this prostitute, this Canaanite, under and deserving of the very wrath of God, did something nobody else in the city of Jericho did. She saw the Lord for who he was, and it led to her repentance. If you look at the second half of verse 11, it says, For the Lord your God is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Rahab displays the ultimate form of God's victory at the battle of Jericho. In his grace, God responds to Rahab's change of affections. She's no longer loyal to the king of Jericho, committing treason to him for the sake of Israel's God. You see, treason's punishable by death. And she committed treason to the king of Jericho for the king of kings and the Lord of lords who can truly give her life. Her loyalties changed to the Lord, making him no longer just Israel's God, but her God too. She heard about this God. She heard about what he did in Egypt. She heard how... He sustained his people. She heard of what he did for them as they crossed the Jordan River. Cross point, how many of us have heard about what God has done and done nothing about it? How many of us have heard wonderful stories of God's faithfulness to his people today and not responded in a way that caused our affections to be changed? 
Look, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of the good news of Jesus. This is the ultimate foreshadowing of the victory that we see at the cross. That through the power of the cross, God was willing to grant repentance to his enemies, us. The Canaanites weren't the only people that were enemies of God. Before I was in Christ, I was an enemy of God. And deserving of his wrath. This is, this, is, this is a hard truth, but we see the beauty of his grace through this. In Joshua chapter 6, 22, it says, but the two men who had spied out on the land, but to the two men who had spied out on the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside of the camp of Israel, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. This woman trusted God, and it changed the entire fabric of her life. She trusted God completely and, and, and God came through in faithfulness. God responded to her faithfulness with faithfulness. And she was only able to be faithful because God granted it to her to be so. Once again, this, this foreshadows the cross. This foreshadows the victory that we have in Jesus. Jesus went to the cross trusting in the Father to bring about his resurrection and glory. This same bold trust enables all of us who were once enemies of God, like Rahab, to be brought into the family of God in Christ. And praise God that he grants repentance and victory to his enemies, right? That's how we can sit here and worship. That's how we can sit here and praise. This, the fact that we can actually grasp the very wrath of God gives us an opportunity to get our hearts around the grace of God. You see, because now we can see what we were saved from. And when we know what we're saved from, we're motivated and compelled to share it with others. We're motivated and compelled to see God for who he really is. A right understanding of grace gives us a deep surrender as we trust in God with our very lives. Romans 5, 10 through 11 says this, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the ministry of reconciliation. And Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 7 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who we all, whom we all once lived in the passage of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Look, I was, I was sitting in a, in a coffee shop uh, talking with a friend uh, on Friday about this message 
and he was with a friend. I didn't know they were together. She was sitting a few chairs away from him, and I was talking with this really close friend of mine about this message, and we were actually talking about grace and light of wrath. We were, we were having this conversation. Man, how do you communicate the wrath of God in a way that not only shows how it's, how it's true, but also in a way that, that, that points to the grace of God and, and what we've been saved from? And so as we're having this conversation, uh, this girl who's sitting next to him just kind of keeps peering over her shoulder at me while we're talking. And as she's peering over her shoulder, she, after about five minutes of doing that, she looks away entirely, and she's just looking at this wall that's in front of her. And I didn't know what she was doing, but um, I wanted to find out. And so right before I was about to leave, I mentioned to my friend, hey, do you two know each other? This girl turned around, and she was weeping. She was weeping because in that moment, what happened was the Holy Spirit of God revealed to her the grace that she's received in Christ. And it caused her to weep. She saw her need and it compelled her to love and devotion and faithfulness and trust in him because of what he's done for us. She saw that in that moment and cried. She saw that God's desire was to make his enemies, his elect, transforming his very foes into his friends. However, those refusing to truly trust in him will see the fullness of his wrath. And she saw that that was something worth weeping in. Because we all know people who don't know Jesus. And it gives us an urgency to share the gospel. Who needs to hear this in your life? Who needs to hear the good news of Jesus in your life? Who needs to know our Savior? Is your lack of trust in God preventing you from sharing it with that person because you're more afraid of what they're gonna, how they're going to react and, and, and less certain in how God's going to go before you? Do they sit next to you at school? At work? Right now? Are they sitting next to you? They need to know. This is sweet grace. Such sweet grace. And if we faithfully trust in God, he's faithful to go before us. If we faithfully proclaim this grace, he will conquer any obstacle in the process. Maybe God is calling you somewhere else to proclaim this grace. Maybe he's calling you to stay here. Maybe he's calling you to pull somebody close that you interact with every single day to share this good news with in a way that transcends our culture, which typically is characterized by complacency, apathy, and comfort. And our trust in God rubs against our idols of complacency, apathy, and comfort. You see, because in our complacency and comfort, it's easy for us to be apathetic toward a God who may seem far off. But the more that we trust in God, we realize that God is near. That he's near. Crosspoint, are you willing to trust in God in areas of your life that you may not be so thrilled to do so? Are you willing to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, not just on Sunday? but on a second-by-second basis as you go through your week? Are you willing to 
prayerfully consider the people in your life that God might want you to pull close to share the love of Jesus with? Knowing that it's not anything you do that causes those people to see him, but that God will faithfully go before you and carry about his plan through perfection. That he who began a good work in them would bring it about to completion. Cross point, do we trust in God to step where we can't see? the worship team wants to come up, you can. I apologize, I ran a little over. I pray for your grace in that. Um, listen, the, the more difficult and potential for failure our steps of faith are, the more opportunity that we get to trust and rely on God the Father. Cross point, we have the Holy Spirit of God living in and through us. We have the risen Messiah sitting at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. And we have the creator of all things who called us. What excuse do we have? What excuse do we have not to trust in the greatness of our God? What excuse do we have to not share this love? If you're not in Christ, what excuse do you have to not be so? Listen, The step of obedience, I think, required by all of us this morning is repentance. Not just those who are not in Christ, but by all of us. Because I think there are areas of each and every single one of our lives that we are not trusting in God in. That we are surrendering to idols or comfort or whatever to not walk faithfully obedient to the Lord. What do you need to repent of this morning? But wrestle with that not just today, not just as you leave, not just when the music starts playing and we gather around or whatever, but wrestle with that when you go home with your family. What act of obedience is necessary for you to take that requires you to have a audacious trust in the Lord? Family, let's trust in God this morning. Let's trust in him this week. Let's trust in him with our lives and let's share in the greatness of his name.
and our belief in your faithfulness to us. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.